0: You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. Good morning, everyone. You guys ready for sanctification? Actually, today is... That was a rhetorical question. The answer I expected was, of course, so I didn't even wait for an answer. Um, but it, it's, we're going to take two parts. So today is not going to be... As, uh, as penetrating to your hearts, maybe. It's, it's like today is that uplifting doctrinal aspect of sanctification. And then next week, we will look at the down and dirty, like practical look at what sanctification looks like with some, some, uh, some really neat examples. But today, today is crucial. And when you look at sanctification, and I'm going to go through a passage that we're probably all very familiar with. Um, the passage is in Romans chapter 6, and so we're going to go through verses 1 through 13 today, and then next week we will, uh, we will do um, the practical aspect of it. So every believer, every believer is on a continuum of from birth to Christ likeness. right? Every one of us, there's not one of us who doesn't have that. Now, each of our continuums might be a little different different than the other in that I can't compare, say, where I am on this continuum from salvation to complete sanctification. I can't compare that to maybe where rock is, right? You just can't do that. But what I am to do is to always compare where I am relative to where the Lord wants me to be. So it's a personal application of me knowing the target. The target is Christ so that I exude him. Everything I say, everything I do, always reflects the nature of Christ. And I'm not there yet, but I'm on that continuum. So the the Bible, even though it recognizes that, we're not going to get there in this life. Either death comes first or the Lord comes first is, is when the complete sanctification ends. But... The, the Lord expects that we are perfecting holiness. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. He says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So, sanctification, holiness, sacred, consecration, all come from the same word. The noun is hagiasmos, and then hagiadzo is the verb, and it literally means to set apart. Now, when you say that, right, set apart, that doesn't infer any, any uh, ethical value, right? You just set apart for God's use. Well, when we talk about sanctification and how we're going to see today, we're going to look at The fact that sanctification has an ethical aspect to it and a non-ethical. The non-ethical aspect you see through the scriptures. There's just no intrinsic value except set apart, set apart for God's use. So the non-ethical aspect of sanctification is that you simply belong to the Lord. It simply is His. Like in the Old Testament, um, what was said about the ground Moses stood. The ground was? Well, the ground has no value. The ground is not good or bad. What made it holy is because it belonged to the Lord, and that's what made it holy. Aaron's, the high priest, the garments, even the inner rooms in the temple were considered holy because it all belonged to the Lord. So there's that aspect of sanctification. And then, of course, there's the aspect of sanctification that is progressive, and and that takes on a very, very high ethical uh, inference. You, you You are looking at people living in such a way that they exude virtue. Well, that's the sanctification that we're gonna look at today. We're gonna look at that, not that on the one hand we're sacred, In that we belong to the Lord, we've been set apart for God's use, and then on the other hand, God is sanctifying us, making us to look like Jesus. The Scripture presents both. We are sanctified and we're being sanctified. For instance, the Scripture says, you're not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. You're not your own. You were bought at a price, which means you belong to God. You and I belong to God, so we are to honor God um, with our bodies. That belongs to God is the sense of holy, set apart, sacred, being there for God's use. Now, I want to show you a couple of verses where we're going to look at this sanctification as having already occurred, completely so that we're not confused when the Bible talks about having been sanctified and then currently being sanctified. So I want to show you where the Bible says that you are complete, sanctified. You completely belong to the Lord. You are holy in that sense, completely. 1 Corinthians uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus... Saints by calling, with all in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You notice he says have been sanctified, past tense. First Corinthians six nine through eleven. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And watch this, such were some of you, past tense, and he's talking to a pretty rugged church, the church at Corinth. They had a lot of stuff going on. And they still had a lot of stuff going on, even after salvation. And we'll get to that, that progressive sanctification. But it does not take away the fact that they belong to God. They were completely sanctified. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So the first aspect of sanctification is it's a done deal. You permanently belong to the Lord. There's nothing that you have to remain in that situation. It is a permanent fixture. You will go to heaven. And that ought to be a great encouragement, right? That's why it's so, so dangerous to our faith when people are, are being taught that they could lose their salvation. I mean, where's the anchor for the soul if you think that? Especially when you start going through stuff, right? You start going through stuff and you don't, you're not confident that you belong to him. That could cause um, some real distress. So, the second aspect of sanctification we're going to look at starting today. And that has to do with that continuum. Salvation, and then the Lord immediately, immediately after salvation, he starts to shape us into the image of Christ so that at the end of the road, we look like Christ. As we're traveling, we're increasingly, progressively beginning to look more like Christ in terms of his his wonderful, virtuous uh, characters. I want to show you some of the verses that talk about this process, right, real quickly. Second Corinthians three eighteen. But we all, with unveiled face, both beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's present tense. Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit, we are being transformed. Present tense. It's happening. And then Colossians three. 9 through 10 do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self and we'll talk about the old self here this morning with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is what being renewed right at salvation we're like right at the start of this thing And there's not much in us. Spirit of God, we're fully, fully belonging to the Lord, but there's not much in the way of looking like Christ. So we are having to be renewed. We're having to be sanctified, being renewed in a true knowledge according to the image, right? To look like him, the image of the one who created him. Oh, complete sanctification is the aim of the Lord, making us look like the Lord Jesus, right? Complete sanctification. From birth to death, a sanctification process. But we're involved in that as well. We had absolutely nothing to do with the first aspect of sanctification where we enter into the body of Christ. That is all God. By his will, he gave us birth, right? Nothing to do with it. However... We have much to do with this progression through sanctification, much to do. And if you don't think so, you're going to relinquish the responsibility that God has placed on us to do certain things. And I want to show the verses uh, real quickly, just a couple of verses. First Thessalonians 4, 3, 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's the will of God. Your sanctification, if you're ever in doubt about what the Lord's will is for your life, when the, when the Bible says this is the will of God, it is something precisely it, precise and important that the Lord wants you to get and be involved in because it's his will. He's saying it, it is his will that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's something that you do. That is something that you must do. He is saying you must abstain. But notice this next verse, because you have to know the help that you have, right? The help that you have through the process, because it could be daunting, right? It could be a daunting task with some of the things that we deal with, to deal with it on our own. But you have to be confident. You have to know that you are never on your own. Here's what the verse says in Philippians. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here's what he says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for salvation. You're saved. He's talking to the Philippian church, and he says to them, work out your salvation. And do it with fear and trembling. There is a level of of, uh, haste. There is a, a level of importance that you place on working out your salvation. That's a preoccupation that we always have to be involved in, right? Working out our salvation. And the second part, he says, verse 13, For it is God who is at work. For it is God who is at work for it is God who is at work. I'm repeating that. Here's why. You don't ever have to question whether you're doing something out of the flesh if it's the will of God, because God is at work. You don't have to vacillate whether the Lord is at work in you. He's always at work. He never stops working. When sanctification doesn't work, it has nothing to do with the lack of effort on God's part. Would you all agree? Absolutely. It all has to do with the effort that I am putting into my sanctification. So God is at work in things, right? Both to will. That means to get you to even desire to do it. Both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So here's what this introduction has been. Sanctification being set apart. It has an ethical and it has a non-ethical inference or meaning. Non-ethical, you belong to him. You're sacred because you belong to him. Ethical, he is making you look like him. He's making you behave like the Lord Jesus behaved while he was here on earth. So that second aspect of sanctification, progression, that's what we're going to look at today. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6, and I'll pray while you're doing that, and this is where we launch off into the doctrine of sanctification. Father, we are so thrilled to be called your own. We know that Your word is just rich with images and words and descriptions and all of the ways in which you communicate to us this great life that you've given us. The fact that we belong to you. You sanctified us. You made us your own. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for that. And our plea is that you continue your work in making us to look like the Lord Jesus. We know it is your will that we be sanctified, But cause us to join in that effort. Cause us, Lord, to be very, very aware of what's happening in and around us all the time so that we might confidently, confidently participate in this work of making us um, into holy beings. Lord, guide our study today so that it might glorify you and uh, edify us. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, so Romans chapter 6. We're just going to jump right in, and I'll cover the verses as we go through. Just that'll save us a little time, right? The question, then, is the first point. Um, I have a couple of points, and it, it just kind of helps me help you feel right if, I don't, if you can't see what I'm thinking, so I'm lost without my slides, right? I need them so I can be confident that you're, you're with me. You have eyeballs on the target, right? You see what I see up here. So the first thing I see in Romans chapter 6 is a question, right? The question is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Great question, right? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? If I asked all of you this question, you would probably all say no, right? That would be like your short answer, no. But then if I asked you why, then you're going to give me a list of probably bona fide reasons why, right? Why you shouldn't. You would probably say things like, but you're a Christian. You can't live that way. Um, The Lord is going to discipline you if you live that way. Don't you love the Lord? How can you treat him that way? But that's not what Paul's dealing with. Paul is not dealing with should you. He's dealing with the impossibility of you living in sin any longer. So it's not a matter of should. It's a matter of cannot. So he says no, and he's going to give you the reasons why it is impossible, why you absolutely cannot. Now, it always helps to define certain words. He says, shall shall we continue in sin? Some versions say uh, continue sinning, right? So the word is epimeno. Interesting way to look at it is he's talking about abiding. He's not talking about committing sin. Sins here and there. He's talking about living in the realm of sin, living in the realm of sin. The word "epimeno" means to abide, right? To remain, to habitually be involved. Um, Paul uses this word in Philippians one twenty-three and twenty-four when he talks about himself. He says, "But I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire and be with Christ for that." is very much better. Yet, he says, to remain. That's the word. To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul is saying to live, to continue to live in the body and the flesh is better for your sake. So when Paul asks the question, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase, he's talking about a condition where that marks who you are. You remain, you abide, you're always in that situation. So the question comes after chapter 5, where in chapter 5, Paul talks about where sin increased, grace increased all the more. He says, 520, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, last week, and even throughout genesis the teaching um, we've been hearing about the bountiful grace of god right noah found grace in the eyes of god the grace of god streams throughout the scriptures so the apostle paul he is just laying down doctrines in romans and he gets to chapter five and he's dealing with sin and he talks about where there's a little sin there is a whole lot of grace, right? And so the thought then is if God saves us and he does it all by himself and he keeps us saved and he does it all by himself, then the thought would be if that's salvation and I, don't, I can't lose it and I don't have to do anything to maintain it, why not sin, right? Right? I mean, even as a Christian, and y'all, I don't think this way. This is just an example. But even as a Christian, I kind of think that you know, if 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 you're gonna give me salvation, and I don't knowing the the tendencies of the human nature, why wouldn't you sin, right? So Paul is dealing with that because there are people who taught, and they accused Paul of that. In fact, that the gr- grace is such that. You know, it's license to sin. There's a guy, I want to talk to you guys about a guy. His name is uh, Grigory Novik. Anybody ever heard of Grigory Novik? He's a Russian guy. And how about Rasputin? Well, he was given the surname Rasputin, uh, and the, the name in Russian means debauched one, right? So Grigory or uh, Rasputin, he, I, I, I did some research, and, and check this out now. I watched a documentary, and those, this will tell you what this guy is all about. The documentary was titled, The Most Evil Men and Women in History, and he's, he's uh, showcased in episode 11. So Rasputin, he taught that after a man had sinned is when he could receive the grace of God. And so he taught people to sin, but not just be ordinary sinners, but to be extraordinary sinners. And as, as extraordinary sinners, you're going to get an extraordinary amount of grace from God. He taught that. In fact, the guy even became um, a part of... He entered into the, the, the political system because he allegedly healed... Nicholas II's son, um, which of course we know how that goes, but 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 he rose to political ranks and then he was finally finally killed. But the guy was debauched. I mean that name is very befitting of him. Debauched. He obviously reading this verse is thinking, where sin abound, grace abound all the more. So let's just sin all the more, and there's more grace. And there are people who embrace that on the one end because it's beneficial to them. It gives them, gives them license to sin, right? But on the other side, you have people like the Pharisaic uh, Jews, you had those ones who thought, you can't teach that because we don't want people sinning. And if you taught that, uh, people would... Go into what they call anti-nomianism or lawlessness, so you can't. That can't possibly be the way of God. And you got to understand when you're leaving Judaism, Christianity, and the whole legal system that the Lord imposed on the Jews. This is quite a thing to be told that it's free. It's free grace is how you're saved. So the first deal is the question. Here's the answer, Paul's reaction. Verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? May it never be banished to thought. King James says, God forbid, by no means. What they're trying to do is the phrase, is may genomai, right? May means not, genomai means cause to come into existence. So may it never come into existence. In other words, in the Greek culture, this word in Koine Greek was the strongest way to say no. The absolute strongest way to say no. When you said no, you knew at that point, it was no. Like in, in my community where I grew up, and uh, I think it's common in, in the black community. Definitely was common in my community. So somebody walks up and says, Roosevelt, do you have any money? No, I don't have any money. Well, see, that's not good enough, because they think I got money. But if, Roosevelt, do you have any money? Man, I ain't got no money. <laughs> Boy, you're broke, aren't you broke are not you Strong, strong, no. Those double negatives work. They mean no. So Paul is saying absolutely no, right? Just like you would say no. But, but his response, right? Beautiful. It's it's emotional and then it's logical, right? No. Okay, that's maybe emotional. Uh, how shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Now, that's a little emotional, but, but that's going to lead to the logic of it all, right? How? How can someone who died continue to live? Here's what he's saying. If you die to the world and you're buried, you can't live in the world tomorrow, right? If you die today, you can't live in the world tomorrow unless you believe in voodooism or something like that. But if you die, you've died to the world. You're out of the world. What what Paul is saying is this. How can we who died to sin continue to live in sin? How can someone who died in Texas continue to live in Texas the next day? He's talking about the realm of sin. And that's why I said earlier, the reason is not shouldn't. The reason is you cannot. It is absolutely impossible for a Christian to continue in sin because he died to sin. Absolutely impossible. You cannot go back to that state that you were in prior to your salvation. You cannot. Now, listen, you could have been in that state and be a very moral person. Aside from salvation, you look moral. You're still dead in sin, right? That's what we're talking about. Or you could have been debauched like Rasputin. You're still living in sin. But after salvation, it's a whole nother change. You are a different person in a different realm. And you have to get that, right? So Paul logically take us through what all of that looks like. So like it might not be but I guarantee you by the time we get through the verse 13, it'll, you'll see it. It'll be very, very clear. So that leads to the explanation. He's going to lay it out. It's an, an incredible explanation. Verse 3 begins it. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? All of us, all, me, you, the Apostle Paul, all Christians, all of us, he says, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. And Paul's not referring to water baptism. You know, baptism in the word is not even translated. It's just a transliteration. Transliteration is when they just change the letters, the Greek letters, and put English letters, right? So pa- baptizo is a Greek word, baptism. But they don't necessarily interpret it right? So I'm going to give you a definition that, that I've found uh, to be the most consistent, right? Baptism is the placing of a person into a new environment or into union with something else to be identified with, to be united with. So when we say baptize into Christ, we're being identified with his death. Nothing to do with water baptism here. Let me give you an example. And this good example because we know it's not water baptism, but I think it helps us to get the point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, for do you not know, for do you not want, I'm sorry, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were what? Baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So these verses are essentially describing a relationship between Moses and all the people. The people are identified with Moses, so much so that as God dealt with Moses, he dealt with the people as well. The people identified with Moses as their head, headship. And everything that Moses stood for, the people stood for. That's that connection. So the apostle Paul He's talking about us being baptized into Christ, being identified uh, with Christ. So I'm going to give you a few examples just so we we fully get that he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about what took place when we were saved. What happened? What all happened? Here we go. So Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. You've put on Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of the one spirit. Excellent verse. Colossians 2, 11 through 13. And in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised, and we know this circumcision is spiritual. It's not physical. We were also circumcised with a circumcision without hands, In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been, watch this, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression. And that sounds really like Romans chapter 6, right? It is showing this union that we have, this connection that we have with the Lord Jesus, and this connection comes through baptism. Let's follow through. Paul says in verses 4 and 5 Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ from the dead through the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the point he's making is this. We died with Christ. We were crucified with Christ. Why? So that we might walk in the newness of life. We shared in that crucifixion. The Lord's crucifixion was totally physical and spiritual, right? Because we can see the nail marks. Our crucifixion is only spiritual, because there's no nail marks. But we were crucified with Christ, right? The problem, you know, Paul says knowing this, right? And whenever he says that, it's, it's basic information that you just got to know. You have to walk around with this knowledge. And what he's saying is, you have to know that you were crucified with Christ, that you shared and what he shared with. So uh, what he, what he, what he uh, experienced. So you were crucified on the cross with him. You entered into the grave with him. And then you were resurrected with him so that you live in the newness of life. And it is indeed a new life, right? It may not always feel like it, but it is indeed a, absolutely a new life. The purpose of it is to walk in the newness of life. And that's incredible. Now, right here, that's our union with Christ. Now, here's our separation from sin. He's going to go back and talk about this death to sin and what that's all about. Romans 6.6, 6. knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our, old, that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Knowing this, and that's his phrase again, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's amazing, right? So that we will no longer be slaves to sin. Let's unpack it. No longer being slaves to sin is the end product. But here's how we get there. The old self was crucified. You know how sometimes people say things like, uh, we all do it. I've done it. Man, you know, after I was saved, um, whatever sin was, I won't name any, but that particular sin just, just kind of fell. You know, the Lord took it away. He just, right, right? Well, guess what? There's probably uh, a more fitting way to say that. In light of what I just read, a more fitting way would be this. So the things that occurred prior to salvation, because God killed that person, it eventually went away as he was, as he sanctified me. It was completely killed and it could have been gone that day, but there is a maturing process and it eventually went away. So you got it. It's not that, you know, he just pulls it away. No, he killed you. He killed the old person so that 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 enslavement might be broken. So we die. And, and here's now in the middle of the verse. In order that the body of sin might be done away with. Right? We died so that the body of sin might be done away with. Done away with? King James Bible says destroyed. NIV says rendered. What is that done away with? The body of sin might be done away with. Now, you do know from the verse, you can see it, that whatever done away with means, it means we are now free from sin right? Because that's the end product. We're not free from sin. So done away with is the word katargeo. Katargeo does not mean to obliterate, right? It doesn't mean to extinguish. It means essentially to render helpless, to make idle, to nullify. In fact, I think I have a, a couple of verses. Yeah, here we go. Romans 3.3. 3. uh, you should see the King James Version and NIV, and this will give you a good sense of what katargeo means. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify. That's katargeo. Nullify the faithfulness of God. Nullify means to, to, to make of no effect. And the King James says, for what if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So, when, when we add, go back to the verse, Paul says, our God was crucified so that the body of sin might be rendered helpless. Because you can't be freed from sin if it's not rendered helpless. You get it? Rendered helpless, you're free from sin. So the, re- the first result of the crucifixion is that the body of sin might be done away with. Now listen, The old man was crucified. So the old man is not the body of sin. Would you all agree? The old man was crucified. So whatever the old man is, which essentially is all that you are prior to salvation, doesn't come over into salvation. What comes over into salvation is the body of sin. So what's the body of sin? I don't know. But it is the body of sin. So some people trying to define the body of sin. I'll just kind of read a little bit, and then we'll jump on. Here's what one guy says about the body of sin. Maybe this will help. Perhaps the most satisfactory view is that of those who understand the phrase as figurative, sin is personified. It is something that has life, is obeyed, that can be put to death. It is represented as a body or, or, or organism as having its members. Compare Colossians 3, 5, and then in Colossians two eleven, the apostle speaks of putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by which he means the totality of our corrupt nature. So here, the body of sin is considered as a body which can be crucified. Now, however you define the body of sin, and I can't read, it, it, it's this entity that is with us, right? But it's been rendered helpless. However you define it, it doesn't sway the meaning of the text. Because the important thing in the text is this, you have to believe that you have been set freed from sin. That's the first step in sanctification. Sanctification doesn't work on our behalf. If we are thinking that somehow we are enslaved to sin and we can't handle it. It may become overwhelming to be sure, but according to the word of God, we can't can't handle it. Here's an imagery, an illustration I often use. Let's say, Somebody points a gun at me and, you know, they're going to shoot me. So sin, pointed gun, ready to shoot me, but the gun is unloaded. If I know the gun is unloaded, would that affect how I deal with that situation? We have to know that the gun is unloaded. I'll tell you what, it's a huge challenge to live a life apart from sin But it's nearly impossible if you don't realize that the power of sin has been broken. And that's the purpose of the death and burial and resurrection and the newness of life that Paul tells us that we have. It's been rendered helpless. Salvation is way more than a pronouncement of not guilty. God declaring us righteous. Salvation is God killing us and making us new people. So when we, when we ask people, have you been born again? That's a real good question, isn't it? But do you ever think about what it means to be born again? It means that you went through a death, a burial, and the born again part is the resurrection, and then you're able to live in the newness of life in the old life the a, a regenerate person is enslaved to sin the lord jesus said anyone who sins is enslaved to sin it doesn't matter how good the life looks or how crooked or evil the life looks it is still a life enslaved to sin why because nothing is done to the glory of god when you're saved Now the scripture says you become enslaved to righteousness and everything is done to the glory of God. And you're enslaved to righteousness, you and I, that anything that's not done to the glory of God, the Lord presses our hearts with it, right? He just presses so that we might get to that place where we're seeking to glorify him. Now, our connection, let's move on. Verses 8 through 11. So we've been... Killed so that we might have newness of life, freedom from sin. Notice what he further says. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Just straight truth. Knowing, here's that word again, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Fact. Death no longer is mastery over him. Fact. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Fact. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Fact. Even so, consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Fact. But guess what's interesting about this fact? It doesn't become real unless we appropriate it. Like, reckon like, count it. Count it your own. You have to make it. You have to live it. John, my mentor, he used to tell me, he used to say, well, the Christian life is is life uh, in that it almost seems like you're on a stage and you're living as an actor, but it's the reality of it. The Scripture says that I am dead to sin and alive to Christ Whether I feel that or not, I have to live that because that's the reality. But if I don't reckon it, sin takes the power and does what it wants to do, and then we're enslaved to it, dead to sin. Now, let's real quickly, death. Death is separation. That's what it means, separation. So when the Lord said to Adam... The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die, right? Surely die. And so folks said, well, he didn't die that day. Yes, he did. That day he died, because the Lord doesn't make mistakes. He died spiritually that day. So that death is separation. Wasn't he separated from God? His soul, if you will, or his spirit is separated from God that day, and then He begins to atrophy. He's dying. And 900 and some odd years later, he died. Death is separation. When you die, your soul is separated from your body. Separation. So we separated from Christ, separated from sin, connected to Christ. Our connection to God is a real connection now that we didn't have prior to salvation. So, I want to end then with the application of this. And the application is pretty simple, right? You've been separated from sin. You've been connected to God. None of that's physical You can't feel it, but because God wrote it, you take it in by faith and you believe it. The application is very simple. Look at what Paul says here in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, right? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. I want to ask you a question in light of what I just said. If, if sin is reigning in my body, is it God's fault or mine? It's mine, no, not yours. It's mine. Yeah. Thanks, Russ. We have to think that way, right? Because we got work to do. We are not to let sin. So the application Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The body is subject to death and it will die. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. All of the cravings of the flesh. Listen, this new person that I am is still housed in an old body. And when I say body, I'm not talking about just physically what you can see. I'm also talking about my mind. There are that are still here that won't be here when I'm with the Lord. You get it? Like the only thing that needs to happen is whoever Roosevelt is in there, the Lord just needs to pull him out and then perfection. But he's left me in this body and he's perfecting me while in this body. So I am not to let the lust of this body, the cravings of this body, I am not to let it rule me any longer because I have been set free from sin. And you guys, you can testify before salvation, you didn't have any kind of, of victories. You always lost the battle with sin. Always. Because you didn't have the newness of life. But now that we have the newness of life, we can win the battle. And he says, do not. Two do nots. The second do not, he says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and the members as instruments of righteousness. I remember being in a situation where I'm sinning, right? Just ugly. Wife knew about it. Just sinning. And I knew it, but it felt so saving. And I learned through that process, and it was hard at first, but I learned through the process to talk to God. Because why hide? He sees what's happening. He knows what's happening. I learned earnestly to come to him because I can't be enslaved to this, even though I felt enslaved. It is horrible. Horrible. And the Lord all along the way, all along the way with me, disciplining, Just getting me to that place where I can move away from that particular sin. Listen, I don't, none of us should ever feel like we are permanently enslaved to sin and that's it. No, you're not. And whatever situation you find yourself, let me say this real quickly. I'm not talking about any one of you, okay? You know how sometimes we preach, you're man, who's he talking about? Is talk talking about rock? Who's he talking about? I, I talk to a lot of you about a lot of things, and I just want that disclaimer out there. I'm not talking specifically to any of you. I'm talking to all of us. All of us, we have to know that sin gets its grip and it's temporal. We have to know that. Now, there is a lot, a lot that can be said about application because it's really important these two verses. Paul, up to this point, has taught five and a half chapters without saying, do anything. And then all of a sudden, this is the first do. In fact, 11 could be looked at as something to do. Reckon yourselves. Think through it and then act on it. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Acting on it, do not let sin reign. Do not let sin reign. So, here's the summation of it. Sanctification begins at our salvation in that God killed us so that the body of sin might be rendered helpless, resulting in us not being slaves to sin. We are connected to God. We can live in the newness of life. And then the simple application that we will unfold next week is simply don't let it rain. Not, you know, don't let sin rule. That's the simple application. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.